Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grubbles into punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest for me from the band DFL and also from, and I can't believe I would get to say this, from the band The Adams. Yes, that's right, longtime Turn It a Punk fans. We finally have someone from the infamous Adams. More on that in a second on the show. Monty Messix is here today, and this is a fantastic episode, and I'm very excited for you to hear it. More on that in one second. But first, if you'd like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedatapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is answered by my brother, Tristan Abraham, who is the guest booker, show producer, and all around just amazing support system for me. I love you, Tristan, so much. Thank you for everything you do. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it. Letting everyone know that you know that we do this podcast here twice a week now. Generally twice a week. Uh, you can also support it, though, by subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice or by heading over to patreon.com slash turnoutapunk. And thank you, everyone, that does do that. I really do appreciate it. And check out some of the stuff that goes up on there, like footnotes and video versions of the podcast. There's a lot of video versions of the podcast going up there as well. And, uh, and some other fun stuff, you know, hidden episodes, things like that, you know, try and keep it fun over there. And thank you to everyone that does head over there and do that. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks of Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do, buddy. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the costs. So I, I, I can't thank them enough for doing that. And one day, one day I will return to a house, house of Vans and get to, uh, do a live turn into punk. I, I truly believe that. I, I believe it in my heart of hearts. All right. Oh, I play in a band called Fucked Up, and as of now, we are going on tour still, and we're going to be playing with Faith No More, which I'm very excited to get to do. Uh, there's going to be a lot of COVID protocols in place. We've got our own COVID protocols in our band that we have to obey as well, uh, but we're going to be hopefully able to play some shows, and I cannot wait to see people there. And, uh, yeah, so look out for... Tickets for those events over on the intranet. If you look up Faith No More or Fucked Up in Faith No More, you will find the shows listed over there. Also, very happy to announce that uh, Fucked Up is going to be reissuing Epics in Minutes, which was the singles compilation. And and uh, I think there's some like non-singles tracks on there as well. Different versions of songs on there as well. Uh thing that we put out on CD way back when on Get Better Records. We are so stoked to be involved with this label and doing something with this label. And uh, Alex, of course, was on the show way back when. Check out Alex's episode. And uh, check out more information at getbetterrecords.com. Also, Fucked Up has... Uh, what else do we have? Oh, uh, yeah, David Comes to Life. We're going to be going on tour for David Comes to Life. And, and Matador Records has reissued that record. And you can find out more information about that at matadorrecords.com and finally tankcrimerecords.com or just Tank Crime Records has put out Year of the Horse on vinyl. It will be hitting stores. It's coming out officially on December the 3rd because this worldwide vinyl shortage and, and delays. You heard about this? I'm not going to get into it. I'm sure there's a podcast about this. This is not the place 
to get into it right now. But there are some issues right now with record pressings and all this sort of stuff. So uh, that thing is finally, though, going to be coming out December the 3rd. And you'll be getting your copies if you pre-ordered it before then. So pre-order that thing if you want it. It's an hour and a half long song. Bring a book. No, I think it's the best thing we ever did, you know? Apart from the other things I said to buy on this show as well. They're the best things we did, too. It's all the best things. All the best things. Speaking of best things, on to today's episode. Today on the show, Monty Messix from the band DFL. From the band The Adams. Yes, finally, uh, a band that we have talked about on this podcast. And also footnotes with uh, Chris O'Toole. We've, we've talked a lot about The Adams over the years. And now finally we get the story of The Adams from Monty Messix. And that's not to undercut DFL. DFL is a hugely important band to a lot of people, including myself, a band that really kind of kept the fast, hardcore flag waving at a time when it was not necessarily the thing that everyone was doing. And they were a band that really brought that to a lot of people, including myself. So he is someone that not did it twice, did it twice with two hugely important bands to me. Uh, on this show. Uh, and also Monty is one of the sweetest people I have ever met. So it is a huge thrill to get to talk to him on here. Uh, there may be a little bit of uh, news about the Adams at the end of this thing on the other side of this thing. So yeah, listen to this thing and then uh, I'll, I'll see you on the other side. I'm not going to ramble on because this is a, a real fun episode. Check out DFL though. They have a brand new EP cause DFL is back. Thankfully, on SBAM Records, Spam Records, sorry, <laughs> trying to figure out how to pronounce that for a while. The umlaut on the 8th is throwing me off. SBAM Records, but DFL have a new re- record coming out. You're, uh, you, why are you DFL, sorry, and it is fantastic. I love this thing, and I've been listening to it nonstop. It's a new EP, so order that and get it on vinyl. And uh, I think there's one song out so far. I think uh, actually the first track, Why Are You So DFL? Why Are You DFL? Sorry, is out now on streaming services and such. But you can pick up that record. It's going to be coming out. I think it's out now. I think as of now, you can start ordering it. It's going to be shipping. Yeah, I think so. I believe so. I'm looking on, looking on the internet right now as we speak. Anyway, while I look on the internet a little bit more, Sit back, relax, and enjoy Monty Messix on Turned Out a Punk. Monty, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. I'm super glad to be here. Um, yeah, this is this is insane. <laughs> it's crazy. Well, that that is, yeah, let me tell you, that is reciprocated on my end, too, because uh, we've been obsessed with, well, as, as a person, I've been obsessed with DFL forever as a band. Like, you know, I, I, I love your band, but I think for this, yeah, and, and it's also something Chris O'Toole, my co-host on footnotes also shares, like we both love DFL, but it was after we did the youth brigade episode and we were researching the label that put out the extreme single that we realized that you were in this band, the Adams, and that there's this connection to to decry and to guns and roses and we have now been obsessed with this band as you i don't know if you've heard but anyone that comes on that could have seen the adams play i will ask them if they saw the adams just so i can get more details about your old band but before we get there i got to start this off the way they all start off which is monty how did you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre 
Oh yeah. That's, that's actually that, that memory is like literally like burned into my like fucking soul. <laughs> um, and it, it actually has a lot to do with, with the Adams too, because I was with uh, two of the guys, one of the guys who ended up playing guitar in the Adams, uh, Taz Rudd. Um, but it was um, uh, Halloween, 1979. And, um, you know, you used to have to find all your shows, you know, in the paper. So there was like the LA Weekly and there was another one called The Reader. And um, <clears throat> we, I don't know why we got this wild hair. We were all skaters. So I went with Drew uh, Bernstein and Taz and we, we skated together like, like crazy. And for some reason, we just got a wild hair to, that we wanted to go see some punk rock, maybe because we had heard heard something on Rodney on the Rock maybe because Drew used to listen to that um and Drew could drive so we uh we drove to the Hong Kong Cafe in downtown Los Angeles and um we saw uh, uh it was uh the germs were headlining fear and this band called Chinus Comitas which was like this art band and then opening was Black Flag with Keith Morris singing. What a show! <laughs> yeah, it was it was just like the most trans transformational, <clears throat> mind-boggling event. And I think I was seventy-nine. I think I was 60, 69, maybe fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember walking up to the the show and the Hong Kong cafes. I don't know if you've ever been to where it is, um, Abraham, but it, it's like in this courtyard mm -hmm. um, in Chinatown. And um, it's a really cool looking courtyard. And, and, and a, um, it's like a two-story venue where at the bottom they had like this traditional Chinese restaurant with like a, a tank of like lobsters and it smelled like Chinese food. And then above you walk up these steep stairs and there was this club um, the space, I guess it'd been a restaurant space. They were renting out for punk shows and you could touch the ceiling. It was really a low ceiling, had like a six inch stage. And, um, I walked up to the club and I saw like this girl with like two-tone hair and like these punk rockers. And, and recently just in the last, I don't know, a few years, I've, I've been thinking about it and I've written a couple of things about it for punk news. Um, and I just thought, you know, these people look as bad as I feel I'm at home. I just, I never looked back. I was just like, I just went all in, all in from there. And, and I, and the thing I remember the most about the show was Keith Morris, who's about, I guess about my height or so, um, rolling around on the ground while he was singing and he, he was crammed into a Spider-Man <laughs> costume that you buy at like, you know, at like a drugstore, you know, like little kid Spider-Man. And I just thought that was just the coolest thing in the freaking world. I mean, I just, it just blew my mind and the music was just so good. So it was amazing. It was like one of the most amazing experiences I, I have to say musically, definitely in my life and, and, and up there in like the top 10. <laughs> what was the vibe like at that show? Cause that's like a, you know, like a real interesting period, I guess, like that's the post mask pre you know obviously it's black flags mm -hmm. playing first on the bill with keith right so it's pre 
everything kind of changing. So what, what was the show like for you from that perspective? Yeah. So there, there were like, and it's actually a perfect example because, you know, kind of, I think black flag kind of led in that, that post kind of where it became more about SoCal punk and mm-hmm. kind of, or kind of aesthetic and, you know, and where the germs and, and even fear definitely Chinas commutas, they, they were, you know, the, they were artists from the seventies, you know, and that's, that was like the mask scene. Like a lot of those people were, you know, they were artists and, and it was, it was a different, like the screamers and it's a different vibe. Um, but at that show, you know, I, I just remember it just being like, I don't know what to say. You know, it was, it was, it was kind of like a weird kind of magical experience because, you know, the music was so good. The smells were just, just like so intense with like this weird <laughs> smell. And, um, and, uh, but, you know, people were still like pogoing, you know, nobody was like slam dancing. People were like, you know, pogoing up and down and, and the music was amazing. The germs are just, you know, those songs are just, um, yeah, they're great I mean, to this day. And, you know, Black Flag, it was, it was great. It was just great, you know. It, it's also like, I think I've seen pictures of Keith in that Spider-Man costume too. Like, it just feels like it, it is, you couldn't ask for, you know, kind of like, you know, with, with even the, the art band on there too, like a more iconic build to kind of like typify that era, right? Like the fact you've got like the sort of like the three, big bands from that scene like even though one's kind of like i guess the next wave but like you know the the fear the germs like they're all in the decline oh, yeah. yeah they were on top you know I, I i don't i don't remember exactly when that germs record was released but i remember going out and getting it and mm-hmm. i still have it um you know and just listening to it like obsessively on my mom's stereo you know obviously i lived with my mother <laughs> yeah of course um, and uh, yeah, and just, you know, the songs were just so good. And yeah, you know, and, and it was like the beginning of like, you know, the, the next wave of punk rock in, um, <clears throat> in, in Southern California where, you know, you had guys, you know, kind of around 79, 80, you know, like, like, um, like Tony from Adolescence, you know, I met him and, and Wasted Youth and Scranny and, uh, you know, uh, Greg Hudson, you know, those people, you know, were, like that was like 1980 yeah oh it's funny you brought up drew bernstein rest in peace but like earlier and it's uh, just before i got on the phone with you i was talking to a friend of mine and we were just kind of like talking about that there's this kind of really weird little moment that or little scene i guess pocket where you have you know justice league america's hardcore no effects i guess the atoms were also part of it too but like it really feels like there's also this sort of like younger scene that's also kind of bubbling up too at the same time definitely definitely i mean i think i think drew was part yeah part of it and and the adams were definitely we were like on that that new second second wave of yeah um that that was there i mean i i remember in i went i grew up in hollywood um and um i was going to hollywood high and and i think i was like the like one of the only punk rockers there and like 79 ish and um there was i met this girl that was i think like a a couple years ahead of me um amy and um she had been part of like that mask punk rock scene uh where i was part of like this new jack scene that was like you know came you know 
know, insanely two years later or whatever, you know, a couple of years later. And um, I remember in 79, um, I was hanging out with her and we were listening to records at her house. She lived, I think, with her grandmother. And she went and got her whole record collection and all of her flyers and uh, magazines and told me, this is like 79, told me, punk is dead. It's over. Take all this. I'm done. And gave me like everything, which I still have, like literally every single thing she gave me, you know, all these like old like adverts and lurkers and, you know, um, stuff like that, you know, old, old English punk rock and uh, all these amazing flyers, like screamers flyers and stuff like that. What, what was she into at that point? Was she just like, I'm over this stuff. I'm into new romantic stuff or I'm into hardcore. Or was it just punk is dead? Just get it out of my house. Uh, I don't, you know, I think she's like into Roxy music. I, I remember looking at um, the cover of Manifesto and it's like, you know, amazing, like mirror ball, like dance scene kind of, I don't know if you know the, the cover. Yeah, yeah. She like yanked it out of my hands. And she's like, you wouldn't understand this music. So. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, You know, you Which brought probably the... Don't, but... <laughs> well, I don't understand it either. So I, I feel like I'm in good company, at least now. Um, the, the, you know, you brought that mass scene and it's, you know, it is fascinating how that like, you know, it's such a brief period of time, but it seems like it was a real separate scene. And the, the thing that kind of springs up in the scene that you're describing, at least in the stuff that I'm, I've read, is that there's a lot of police violence. Like that's when the police really start showing up at these shows and busting people's heads like the St. Uh, St. Patrick's Day Massacre, um, you know, show, for example, and and things like that. Did you do you see that stuff beginning to creep in when you first started going to these shows? Um, you know, actually, I was probably too, I, I don't remember that from the mass, but I definitely remember the police like in the second wave and that so-called second wave, like 81 ish or so. So clubs like the um, the Devonshire Downs, uh, the, 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 the Moose Lodge. The um, and then there are these clubs down in the South Bay, like the Fleetwood and the Raging Water, um, Raging Waters, Ramping Waters, Falling Waters, something I can't remember the name of it. But um, I remember like you know getting in the car and driving down from Hollywood to um, to to Hermosa or wherever to go see a band in the South Bay, and um, you know and the police like pulling you over and you know pouring out all your beer and you know saying that they're going to kick your ass and you know, stuff like that and, you know, get out of here, never come back. So, and then there were also just um, some, uh, where was it? I think it was, I want to say Devonshire Downs, but I could be wrong. Um, there was, there were a couple riots back then too, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, yeah, definitely. There was some, some police violence jumping off a lot of it in the South Bay, I, I see to recall. Uh, going back before you kind of discovered punk rock, you mentioned being a skater. What kind of music were you listening to? when I was, when I was a skater, I, um, so now we're talking like the, the mid seventies to like the late seventies. So like when I got into skateboarding, it was like, uh, you know, um, loose ball, um, loose bearings in your, in your, in your, your wheels and literally clay wheels. And you had to like take like a wood screw and like wood screws and screw your trucks into your board and stuff like that. And I was like really obsessed with, um, uh, with, with skateboarding and, you know, got into like, you know, the Logan Erski and like these early kind of skateboards that were like a little bit more technical. Um, 
And at that time, I was really into, I remember um, Led Zeppelin. So I was kind of like a stoner pothead. I wouldn't say a stoner, but I was definitely a pothead. And I was really into Led Zeppelin, um, like A-Track Tape, um, really into Aerosmith, especially Aerosmith Rocks, which I just thought was just, you know, insane. And, um, and, and really into like Black Sabbath. So, and actually I remember my first show that I ever went to, not a punk show, but I think before that was somebody took me to go see Aerosmith at the forum or something like that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I guess there's also that kind of rock stuff's popping off there, you know, like uh, Quiet Riot and Van Halen and, and bands like that. Were you like kind of aware of that stuff also happening? Like how aware were you of like local music prior to going to this punk show? Like you mentioned listening to Rodney on the Rock. Yeah, pretty, pretty oblivious to tell you the truth. I was pretty young, so I, I, mm-hmm. I was pretty oblivious to it. I, you know, I mean, we've listened to Rodney, but again, I, I don't think I was like, you know, he'd play like Devo and, you know, and stuff like that, which I, again, thought was was great. The first Devo record is amazing. But I wasn't too too keyed into to any of that stuff until later in the 80s when those bands really started to blow up, you know. Even though I do remember skateboarding at the... Um, Actually, where I met Taz, the, the guitar player in the Adams, and a bunch of other people was skateboarding at Marina Del Skate Marina Del Rey Skate Park, and um, and uh, and I remember like Blonde, they, you know, they had like the, you know, they'd be blasting like Blondie and and, and uh, Van Halen and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> speakers. So where'd you kind of go from going to this first show? Like after you know, like it's. it's what a way to start. Like, what were your sort of like other early memories of going to punk rock after that? Yeah. So after, like I said, I was like all in, you know, I mean, I, I loved the skateboard and stuff like that. And I, I think I still did a bit, but I was really just, just, I, we dove like headfirst in and there were back then there were shows every single night. So you could go from like the Hong Kong to Al's bar to club 88 to you know the, the the starwood to the whiskey to clubs down in, in um, the south bay like the fleetwood to clubs out in the valley like godzilla's so i mean you could just go in like you know a circuit of of clubs and people would be flyering so, so we just went like all literally all 100 percent in and you know and there were bands like i remember um so like i said i grew up in hollywood and there was um, this building on the corner of Hollywood and Western that were is where everybody practiced slash lived in these like practice, really disgusting practice rooms, <laughs> like, you know, with like beer and cigarettes and God knows what on the carpets and, you know, and these, you know, now looking back, these amazing instruments from, you know, that were probably from the sixties and the seventies and whatnot. And, um, and I remember, you know, we're like little kids. We're like 16, 17 years old, maybe younger. And, um, uh, you know, we, I remember there was the Chiefs had a studio, the Gears had a studio, um, you know, maybe they had one together. I'm not sure. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I remember going and just hang, you know, just hanging out with them or you're going down to the South Bay and we, we hung out, went down to the church and like just hung out down there with you know, with whoever was, was there, you know, to hang out with, um, you know, dudes from Black Flag and, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was just, it was just a time we just, that's all we did was, was punk rock and alcohol and drugs. (laughs) 
you mentioned like being the only guy in your school into this stuff. Like what did your peers kind of make of you kind of getting into this sort of, cause it had such a bad rap in, you know, for years it had such a bad rap punk rock. You know, I, I went to like, so I went to Hollywood high and there was like an alternative alternative track for the high school. They have like, so I, you know, I was in that school, which, and you know, I, like I, I never have felt like I fit in even before punk rock, you know, I've always felt like an outsider and um, like I'm looking in and, you know, punk rock, I think just kind of gave me like a, like a, like a, a vehicle or a voice, I guess you'd say to like express how I felt um, about that. And, you know, the people at my high school were like, they were really straight laced people, even though it was Hollywood high, you know, they, you know, um, and there wasn't really any room for people that deviated from their norms. Mm. And so I remember like I, um, the girl, Amy, who gave me her record collection, um, you know, gave me like a punk rock haircut, which was like a short haircut with like a tail. And that was crazy. And then like, I bleached it. And that was like, you know, just way over the top, you know, in 1979. And, uh, and, you know, they, you know, they'd say things, you know, that were, that were not, you know, not cool things that I definitely don't want to say. Mm -hmm. um and yeah yeah it's and the funny thing is is a lot of them in 79 80 that were you know calling me it you know you know saying you know that that i won't go into it but um a couple years later you see my at the shows you know (laughs) yeah yeah and you know after they had found rodney on the rock or whatever heard about it you know became more popular well i guess that speaks to kind of what we were alluding to earlier when these people start showing up is that when stuff starts being less fun or at least more violent in a in a negative way it, it definitely like i said the the violent part that i remember were a lot of people from like south bay or maybe it was from hermosa from huntington beach which mm-hmm. is Orange County, you know, coming up and it was like this new kind of like jock kind of breed of, of, uh, punkers, you know, that were just, you know, that, that were, you know, really buff and wanted to fight where I was used to like the, the, the more arty drugged out punk rockers. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, yeah. So I, like I, you know, and also I think the music got more aggressive, you know, I mean, it, the music got more and more aggressive um, and, uh, and the slam dancing got more, you know, went from pogoing, you know, which is kind of an arty thing to do to, um, to slam dancing, which, you know, people were just going crazy, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. It, it's um, funny, Keith, when he was on the show, well, it's not funny, but it, it was actually kind of, I don't know, very interesting. Keith, when he was on the show brought up the fact that because these were a lot of kids, like you're saying that were coming from these beach communities. These were like outdoor jock kids just by like the way they were brought up. And because of that nature, like it was just sort of like a, a jock culture that was just sort of transposed onto punk rock. Yeah, For a lot of people, for a lot of people, <laughs> some of them, at least I'm thinking, you know, that were just, they were just like tough guys. You know what I mean? They were, they were tough guys. And this, and it, I guess in the same way that this kind of gave me an outlet for my angst, it gave them an outlet for theirs too. You know what I mean? It kind of sanctioned that type of behavior, at least in their minds. You know, this was really super aggressive music and aggressive lyrics and aggressive 
you know, mosh pits and whatnot. And so, uh, but yeah, yeah, they were, they were around. I, you know, I, like I said, I, you know, I'm like five, seven. The time I probably weighed all over 120 pounds. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I, I avoided that stuff like the plague. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, understandably, wanted... too, because it just, <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, 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 you know, definitely a little heavier and I would still avoid that like the plague <laughs> as well. I think it, it's, it's, you know, it's almost become storied at this point. The violence in LA punk, you know, like it's, it's, it's almost fetishized on a certain level by people that didn't live through it. But when you actually start breaking it down and hearing, you know, like real accounts of it, it sounds fucking heinous. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, for me again, a person that, that, you know, that wasn't like my thing, like fighting, you know what I mean? But for some of these people where it was their thing to, to, to be aggressive that, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty crazy. And you definitely felt like, you know, like anything could happen, you know, uh, in terms of you know getting getting in a fight whatever, but like I I, I it never happened to me you know I mean I I was I was pretty much on the you know on the side of all that stuff, but uh, yeah I mean you know I mean I guess may, maybe you know people watch like the decline you know the first decline and they they see that and they think you know you know it does seem like it's uh, and I. You know, I guess, you know, you see like, you know, people, you know, the, the, you know, people moshing and like those kind of iconic, you know, boots, bandanas and chains kind of things going on. Mm-hmm. Like that's where it started, you know, and so yeah. I guess it become, you know, and, and whether they knew it, we knew it or not at the time, you know, it was, you know, in a kind of an American form of music that was that was hap- you know, beginning to happen right then, which was like kind of this hardcore black flag, circle jerks, adolescents, you know, um, like, like jazz or something else, you know, I mean, it, it was happening then, you know, it was, it was, it was being born. Well, it's funny, you, you know, once it's, it's interesting, you bring up the decline of Western civilization and just sort of like that sort of image of punk rock, like you're talking about, you know, that's the, that's the type of punk rock that's exported. Like, that's really the birth of punk rock. Like when you look at the stuff that was coming out of CBGBs, a lot of it's super arty, like we were saying. And like, you know, look at the stuff that's coming out of, out of England at the time, like, you know, I guess sonically, but it's still people were pogoing, like moshing, I guess called thrashing at first is born in LA, you know, like this is really like what we know of as punk rock is being born by the scene that you're coming into. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and, and like a lot of the stuff that came out of England, I guess, you know, 79, 78, Clash, um, Sex Pistols, like I love the Sex Pistols. And Sex Pistols had that, that that kind of raw energy that I liked. But again, it was when you kind of put that through the filter of like Southern California, it came out more like early bad religion and and circle jerks and, you know, black flag, you know, which was... You know, totally, you know, kind of a different form of punk rock, you know. Yeah, it's interesting having a bunch of people on the podcast that were, you know, that were really, you know, like played in, you know, like Billy Bragg was on or the people from Cox Bar were on and talking about how skeptical they were of bands like The Clash and the Sex Pistols, just because to them it seemed really arty. And it wasn't until you kind of had bands like The Jam come up that they were like, okay, now we get it. Like it's, it's, it's almost, like yeah, it just feels a little less authentic than the stuff that would kind of come a little bit later. 
even though it is obviously like you're saying i love the sex pistols too and that aggression is there and the clash are the clash but at the same time like they're dressing up a little bit more yeah definitely definitely dressing up a little bit more and but you know i, I you know listen to those old sex pistol songs and one of the things i just love about them not to mention the the energy and the 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 look of them but you know the 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 sound of those recordings are just so good the sounds of all the early punk rock recordings are just so great you know and, and i love the sound of steve jones um you know that les paul and it's just so big and and uh and just raw so it's you know as a guitar player you know I, between him and um like johnny thunders who i loved a lot also and and uh you know the atoms which i haven't really gotten into but the atoms are really influenced by him and um you know and then early 80s la punk rock you know <laughs> kind of yeah. together. you get like the, the guitar player i am today which is not the greatest guitar player but i can i, I like to play punk rock well, well you brought up like steve uh, steve jones and he gets such a like kind of a, a bum rap i think in terms of like what he brought to guitar playing because he brought like a like a weirdly a weird new approach to the instrument like where it's almost like a a rhythmic propulsion device as opposed to being like a, a lead instrument in any sort of way like it's just it's just like i don't know these riffs that are just over layered over top of each other so they're just like punishing and pulsing at the same time yeah it's amazing the mate the tone that they got on those records is just it's just great yeah yeah I, and early it, sorry go on oh i just say it, it had a huge influence on me what were you gonna say i earlier when you brought up the uh the gear and the fact that there's all this good gear lying around like it's amazing how timeless those records sound because you know like you listen to the to Nevermind the bollocks it sounds way more contemporary than a record that would have come out in like 87 that was layered with keyboards on it you know or or just like the early advent of sort of like computer programming on these records just dates it in a way that these records that were recorded with this great gear just still seems timeless like and the southern california stuff definitely too oh yeah yeah i mean you know i mean that's one of the things i think really influenced dfl and our recording style was that we always tried to make it as lo-fi as possible and a big part of that for me you know came out of like these early punk rock recordings especially like the danger house like all that danger house stuff mm -hmm. um there's like a certain sound that they got like quality to like the guitars and the drums and everything like that and um like the sound of um like bad religions first record how could hell be any worse um you know like i love the way it just it just sounds so raw and so much like they just it's like a performance they went in the studio they recorded it and that was that you know, and they, and, and didn't overthink it. Yeah, no, yeah. it's all like, it, it, and it's, you brought up Danger House, like, that's like a perfect label. Like, every release on that label is just like, even the ones that kind of are like more new wavy or a little more, you know, on that kind of end of things are, are still awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the Deadbeats, which was like, again, like an art band, you know, but I mean, that came up with a song like, kill hippies you know <laughs> it's a ridiculous song but i you know it's 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 a great it's yeah they were great records and they sounded so good so how did the atoms come together 
Um, so that's a good question. Like I said, we were going to lots of punk rock, me, Taz, uh, Drew Bernstein. Um, and, and I think Taz somehow or another had got a guitar or had a guitar. He had this old Hagstrom. And so he could, you know, it's like, like that, the old tale of like, well, you're the guitar player because you own a guitar. So he started playing and he was actually really good at it. And I thought I'll be the singer. And I think we started writing some songs and then started trying to recruit <clears throat> bass players and, and a drummer. And I, I think I was looking, I was just reading a fanzine. I've got like a box of like old stuff. And, and I was reading a fanzine of uh, a fanzine called We Got Power. And it has a review of our first show. Um, and so I think that um, this guy, Oscar Harvey was in the band, or Harvey Oscar. And he was, he was like this guy who's, we were probably 16, 17. He was probably 30 and he was a black dude and played harmonica and hung around, I guess, the punk scene and he had fought in Vietnam. And, um, and then, I don't know how I met Jeff Isabel, but he was our first drummer. And he, I remember he had drums. So he was like jamming with us. And we used to practice out of Taz's mom and mom's house in South Pasadena. She had like this big old craftsman's house. And we had the bit in top and Taz had the, had like the, um, um, the first, not the first floor, had the, um, I'm blanking on the word. Anyway, he had like a big part of the underside of the house. And um, yeah, I think we just started writing songs and jamming. And there's a, I remember Jeff, he had to store his drums somewhere. This must, maybe it was before we started. It was in the basement. That was the word uh, that I'm looking for. I'm tired. And, no, I understand. Don't worry. Uh, and, uh, Anyway, and Jeff like kept his drums at my mom's house. So in my room that I shared with my younger brother and his drums were in these boxes that must've been, um, had some kind of like toilet paper that was like heavily scented. And so it ended up, my room smelled like so bad. It like gave me a headache. It was, it was really, I was like one of my memories of, of Jeff's drums and, um, yeah, I think, and I think we, we just started, we started jamming and, and, um, and, and trying to be a band. I mean, it says here in this, this review, it says the Adams at Al's bar after two years of existence and always an amazing number of ex-members to their credit, the Adams finally made their debut at, at Al's bar on October 23rd. So <laughs> And I remember that show because we drove down with with Jeff's car through Hollywood. And then his, and he had like this big giant sedan that was, you know, just on its last leg. And it it died and on the freeway with all our gear in it. And um, Al's bars in downtown through probably about a few miles away. So somehow or another, we got to Al's bar and then flee who was playing in what is this at the time? I think they were on the bill flea jumped his car. We went and got all the gear out of Jeff's car and drove it back to Al's bar. 
That's amazing. <laughs> that's bizarre. <laughs> that is awesome. That is wild. So, like, how did you like meet Harvey Oscar? Because he's the only person in the band that I like. I can't find out any other information about as far as doing other projects afterwards. Like, was he in other bands? Like, how did you find this guy who's like? And punk rock's one of those weird places where you can have a thirty-year-old guy in a band with a bunch of fifteen-year-olds, and it somehow makes sense. Yeah, yeah, you know, I that's I I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to remember. I, I think it's the way that I met most people at the time was just at shows. You know, you'd mm-hmm. be at a show and you'd be chatting with somebody, and then they'd be chatting, and you'd say, and they'd say, "I'm a bass player," and we'd be like, "We need a bass player," and you'd be like, "I have a bass." And Harvey had like a really beautiful Rickenbacker, this great Rickenbacker bass. And he, he was actually a, a pretty decent bass player, if I remember correctly. <laughs> but he's still around. He's, um, you know, he calls me like once a year just to check in and say hi. That's awesome. That It's like, it's so, I don't know, the only documentation of this band is the 7-inch that came out in 1991. Like, it's so know, weird. What? Yeah, that was... Chris Trent, our friend Chris Trent, who was also like a punker back in the early 80s with us. Um, and I was at Vinyl Fetish on Melrose and I saw the Adams <laughs> featuring Izzy Stradlin. That's what's on the cover of this particular seven inch. And I was like, what the fuck? And uh, I look it over and Chris, I guess, released a practice tape on its first song is New York City Blues, which is one of our originals, House of the Rising Sun. Third song is just blank. So I couldn't even figure out what that song was. (laughs) And then the fourth song is Chatterbox, which is like, I guess, like a Johnny Thunder song that we used to do. It's so weird because it's also on Test Tube Records who did the Extremes and the Zeros singles, like the the Pre-Youth Brigade band, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I have that zero single. <laughs> so that was Chris, Chris Trent. He, he was a genius. He like graduated two years early from high school. I think he went to, to Santa Monica High and graduated a couple years early. <laughs> That's amazing. So did you guys actually record anything or is this just like, this was just a jam session, right? Practice tape, I should say. The practice tape. We, we recorded something that I don't, you know, just got lost. I think at Taz's, Taz's mom had a, she she lived in like this this big huge mansion green it was like a green and green uh, which is a, a famous type of mission architecture here in southern california and she shared the house with all these people that followed this maharaja or somebody some spiritual guy i don't know um and so one of the ten, one of the people that lived there set up a studio in the garage and recorded us, but I don't know what happened to that. It was like a, there was like a reel to reel, but I. Uh, so I'm gonna ask her. She's still around, and actually we're in touch with her right now because, um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but but I did. I have this. I have this recording from Chris, which actually I'm gonna take and get it digitized. Um, cause Chris doesn't know where the, the cassette is. And I then had another cassette that I've just kept for years. And literally the cassette says Adams 1981. That's what's on the cassette. And I had that digitized and there were, there were a few other songs on there 
And again, it's like practice. It's, it's I mean, it's, it's horrible. I mean, it's like really like will make your ears hurt kind of music, you know, just so just, just, you know, I mean, we were just learning how to play and, you know, I, I totally did not know how to sing or do anything, but, but yeah, we have them. And um, actually the cassette, I've been in touch with um, uh, this dude, you probably, probably know him, Brian uh, Turcourt, Turcott. Yeah, and, Brian Ray Turcott. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I've been in touch with Brian, which um, kind of led me to, to actually uh, hearing your podcast. And, um, uh, and he's interested in doing uh, uh, a book on Sean Carey, which I've got Sean drew a, a, a lot of flyers for the Adams and drew a lot of stickers for us. And, um, and so we were thinking, oh, it'd be cool to have like a section where on like the Adams flyers in that book. And then we could release this, this other cassette as like a flexi disc or something maybe. Oh yeah. It'd be amazing. Like I, I got to hear the Adams to me is, is my most desired to hear band at this point, because it's, it's not on the internet and for historical significance, like the fact that this band does sit in this like really amazing scene and the fact that also you have members that wind up in junkyard, wind up in, in DFL, wind up in guns and roses, like it and decry, like it really does, you know, it, it's a very significant band. Oh, well, I'll just say this, that I'm shocked to, to hear that. I, I, <laughs> I literally have for years just thought like that the Adams were, you know, just kind of like a little blip that, that this was, was, um, you know, not noticed by, by many people. So I, it's, it, it's, 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 it's amazing. Don't get me wrong. Totally amazing, but completely surreal to hear, you know, um, that you're interested in, in the Adams and, and, and lately other people, have, you know, like, like Brian's, you know, interest in, in these flyers and stuff like that. So it's, it's really cool. It's amazing. You, know, you just never know. So how long did you guys go on for? Because there are a couple lineup changes, right? Yeah. So there was, um, there was Jeff Isabel who went on to be Izzy Stradlin. Um, and I think he was the first drummer. Then there was, um, and he played with Oscar Harvey. And so then I've got a bunch of pictures. I don't have any pictures with Jeff in the band, but I have pictures, I think with the next lineup, which was um, Oscar Harvey and Pat Muzingo who went on to, to play in Junkyard. Mm -hmm. um, and Pat was like a great drummer. You know, he was like the real deal. And um, then I think Harvey left or Oscar left and then Michael left Glass, who was in, um, oh, what was his name, Michael's, oh, I feel horrible, I'm blanking on it. Um, like uh, from the same era? Yeah, Michael left Glass and the singer of his band had a female singer in it. Thir Sin 34? That's it, Sin 34, thank you. Yep. So yeah, yeah, and then 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 um, Michael Flass played with us, and yeah, and I you know, and I think what happened you know in the end with with the band just kind of petering out is unfortunately I think just you know drugs just got in the way you know where we I think did have some some promise and I've actually been doing some research on kind of putting together a timeline and looking at flyers lately because of uh, Brian's interest and, 
and also um, like really tragically Taz, the the, um, the guitarist and who wrote all the music for the Adams was murdered recently. So, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, just like um, like oh, a little under a month ago. And um, yeah, I get a, a message from Mike Mark asking if Taz had been murdered. And Taz sadly had struggled the last few years with homelessness and drug addiction. But um, yeah, so I think that's what happened was drugs got in the way of you know, just being able to function as a band. It seems like that was um, something that really crept in in that scene, like in a big way. Like there's a, you know, obviously there's a lot of people that, are, are very publicly known for not making it out of there because of drugs. Um, but it just feels like at a certain point that became more and more of a presence in the scene. It was raging. I mean, just at least in, in the people I was around, it was, you know, I mean, you know, no one had a job. No one did, no one did anything but go to clubs and live cheaply <laughs> and do drugs and, and have sex with each other i mean it was it was just like a you know it was like a three ring circus just 24 7 you know with with that for for a good couple of years you know there in the in the early 80s for at least for me yeah no definitely it, it well like you're saying you're super young you know and it's a lot of freedom for someone who's super young to kind of find themselves with all of a sudden i imagine definitely definitely like zero supervision zeros and and you know and but, you know, I mean, I was fortunate, you know, I was able to, to move on, you know, and, you know, and, and, and actually a lot of people, you know, were able to kind of move on from that. And either some people did go on to have, you know, successful musical careers <clears throat> and some people, you know, didn't, but, you know, I think a lot of people got sober. Where did you kind of go um, after this point? Like, you know, like you obviously you mentioned drugs becoming more and more of a factor, like what? where'd you kind of go like in terms of when the band dissolves? Yeah. When, you know, when it dissolves, it's pretty foggy to be honest. Um, but I think, you know, Taz, I think went on to some, some other bands. Like there were like a lot of like kind of glam bands that he was like this band Shanghai. And, and, um, I think before he got into decry and, um, so there were like a bunch of kind of, bands that he got into and kind of left the Adams and um and I think you know I just I I really spun out on um you know just full-blown you know substance abuse for the next probably five years six years of of that and was really fortunate to you know to be able to get out of it as young as I did but um but yeah you know it's and so I didn't, I didn't really do any, any music again until I started DFL in like the early nineties with um, like when I hooked up with like with Tom Davis and the Beastie Boys. So like, I guess like, well, you're, you know, obviously, you know, um, you know, getting your sobriety and, and, and struggling with uh, what you kind of had come through. Were, were you still able to kind of like be aware of the music around you? Like, were you still able to go to shows or were you just focused on getting sober at that point? Well, in the, in the, in the you know, during the eighties, I, I did go to, to, I would go out to shows and do stuff, but, you know, just, you know, eventually it just all just kind of surrounded 
just you know, full-blown substance abuse and, and using and, until there really wasn't any anything else and it just got pretty you know my life just got really small and really dark yeah how, how did you get back into making music again um well you know in the in the in the early 90s i um well backtracking in in the, in the 80s i bought a uh, a Les Paul Jr. So I'd always had a guitar, this this really beautiful, um, like 60s Les Paul Jr. that I bought out of like the recycler of some magazine that, that they had where people would sell things, you know, it was basically like the, the print version of like Craigslist, I guess. Yeah. Um, it was this beautiful guitar. So I'd always was, you know, learning guitar. I mean, and I, and I had a bass back then too. I had this really great, you know, one of these like SG shaped bases and i remember um my les paul taz threw it at his girlfriend i think and broke it in half and so i had it glued back together and because i love johnny thunder so much i the guy like painted it to look like a tv yellow um double cutaway even though it's a single cutaway and the, the cutaway is wrong but i loved that guitar and i actually recorded all dfl's um everything on dfl with that guitar um, you just had these great P90 pickup and just this wonderful sound. And, um, you know, so after in the early, you know, after I kind of got sobered up and, and I, you know, I've always loved music. You know, music has always been a big part of me and started playing, played with some, some people here around. I was living in Echo Park, played with some Echo Park people, um, trying to write songs and it just, just nothing would, would kind of gel. And, um, but, you know, and then, then I was, you know, friends with, uh, Adam Horvitz and just goofing around. I was like, Hey, you know, I've, I've been writing these hardcore songs. I think I, I was getting back into listening to, to how could hell be any worse, um, from uh, the bad religion, um, record. And I was writing all these songs that kind of sounded like the music I'd heard at that time in the early eighties. And he was like, yeah, let's, let's go to the studio and play. And so, you know, Tom got involved and. Uh, Tony Converse and uh, uh, Mike D and other people and, you know, and, and Mario Codato and, and just started recording these, these like hardcore songs that I had written. And um, yeah, you know, and it's, and, you know, like I said, you know, I've just always been a musician and, and love to play music. So I kind of just found my way back to it, I guess. It's also like, it's such a, it's such a cool record because it comes out at a time when, like that was not like, obviously fast hardcore has come back and has remained back. Um, but at the time it comes out in 93, it's like, it's almost out of step in the perfect way that makes it so awesome with the prevailing kind of wave of hardcore at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was kind of like right before like this kind of second, second wave, like this nineties wave of, of, of punk rock and, you know, to do something lo-fi, do something that was just so in your face and so fast, like, you know, just like, uh, we would play back then and people would just look at us just like, what just happened? In front of like, was that really like a 30 second song that just happened, you know? And, um, and yeah, you know, and, and uh, I loved it. It was great. You know, I still love it. It's still just the, this, I love playing that music, you know? It, it, I think that's the thing that it like, you know, hearing it as a kid, 
you know, like it, it, you're like you're saying it's so fast. And I think, you know, even the stuff that would come a couple years later in punk rock was so slick. Like it was, it was very polished, you know, very pop punky and DFL to me has always been like a band that would have fit in more with the stuff that would kind of come into vogue a few years later, even like in the early two thousands or the mid two thousands. Like, it's just, it's like a real hard, it's like a legit hardcore band. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, Brett, I remember he heard that first, Brett Gerwitz heard that first single the record that came out on Grand Royal. And he, you know, was like, we want, I want you guys to come to Epitaph, but we were going to stick with Grand Royal. And, you know, we just, when we did go to Epitaph, we kind of just stuck with, with our sound and, 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 um, you know, and it seemed like, like the next wave, like at least like, Future Ways of Hardcore became kind of more like a slower kind of, you know, then kind of morphed into like this, this kind of like cookie monster voice, you know, kind of thumping around type hardcore where it's, it's not like anything like, you know, what I heard, you know, back at the Starwood or something or, or Godzilla in the early eighties. So, um, you know, and it's interesting you should say, you know, because I, I feel like you know, DFL has been playing again for the last couple of years and, and it feels like that music is getting recognized a little bit again by, uh, you know, uh, by people. So, yeah, like it felt like it just kind of, maybe it's in the, I don't know, mid 2000s, something like that. Like it just kind of clicked and people were like, Oh, it doesn't have to be one style. Like you can like everything. And it's just, I don't know it feels like now we're at a point where like you're saying like there's there's an appreciation for all the possible mutations of this thing and i don't know i feel like dfl it must have been like you're saying like you're showing up you're playing way faster than anyone else like it's, it's hard to think of like there's no one on epitaph until union 13 shows up that's doing anything close to what you guys are doing at that point definitely definitely there was yeah there was really nobody else that was that was playing like that style of music and still um you know i mean i i don't know i mean i, I would really you know uh yeah yeah and and you know we just we just decided to just stick to our guns you know and just and just play that style that was like dfl styles style of music so we just you know kept at it and uh but you know maybe it's it's you know there's you know, these days things are, it's, it's such a, a crazy mix of music, which I attribute to um, the internet, you know, that you could have a kid today that's my age when I got into punk rock, like 16, that, you know, were, you know, uh, born in like, you know, I don't know, the early 2000s or something like that. Um, but they go online and they could hear all this amazing music, you know, from that time period, if they want, just by, you know, digging around on the internet on their phone or whatever, you know, so there's like this weird kind of mixing of, of styles and genres. And, and you go to like, uh, like festivals, you know, and, you know, there's just bands that are been around that were around in like the early eighties or bands that were, you know, big in the nineties or bands that are big doing well now. And it's just all kind of mixed together, you know, and, you know, guys that are my age that are playing punk rock, um, and, and guys that are 16 years old that are playing, you know, it's, it's just all, you know, and, and, and there seems to be this, this, this kind of mutual respect, you know, for, for all these different kind of mashup of music. 
Yeah. And it, 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 there's a continuum too. Like it feels like there is this sort of, I don't know, like a real linear history to this music where, you know, different people can be traced to different things. And and I think that's a great thing about this internet for someone like me, who's obsessed with kind of connecting these dots is the fact that like, you know, I can, I can find out about a band like the Adams that, you know, there's only a bootleg seven inch of that, <laughs> that connects all these different this sort of seemingly disparate places for me as like a young person, but yet it all seems cool. And then you get older and you're like, of course it all seemed cool. Cause it was somehow weirdly all connected. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 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 And, you know, and we've been playing again, like I said, and, and uh, Tom and I um, recorded a, a, another record and it's um, we wanted to really make it sound like it was again, in my mind's eye, when I think of DFL, I, I go back to like, the Vex in 1980, or to seeing TSOL for the first time, or seeing Wasted Youth, or first time I saw Circle Jerks, or that first Black Flag show, and just the way it feels back then. And those are like, you know, the, the way I try to write music, you know, kind of like, like maybe like somebody that, that's really into, you know, playing, uh, you know, like a kind of like a really pure form of jazz or something like that, you know, they try to like stick to like that, that type. And um, so anyway, we recorded this record that that we think at least you know really kind of feels like that time still, and um, and 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 it's it's going to be um, should be released actually this summer. It's coming out on this label in Europe called Sabam. So um, we're really excited about that. Hopefully That's it's- awesome. Well, I think I think it's just uh, like you're saying. There's something timeless about it, right? Where if, like it's something that you keep tapping into. Totally. Totally. I think tapping into is a good way to look at it. Yeah. Where were the lyrics? Oh, sorry. Didn't mean cut off. Go on. No. Where were the lyrics coming for on, on that? Like the songs like the Mosher and Knucklehead and things like that. Like, were you guys going to shows around that time too? Kind of checking it out. Or are you kind of hearkening back to the, to the early stuff when the band's first forming? Um, I think I was trying to like hearken back, you know, the, the way that Tom and I, Right, wrote a lot of those early songs um is that i would like write the music and then i would i would write a chorus like um pizza man pizza man pizza man he delivers and i and then i just like tom could just write anything he wants for the verse and there's some verse i don't know what he's saying to this day you know what i mean but i just my part is pizza man that's the part that i like that I sing. And I mean, I like Tom's stuff too. Like the guy's like a poet. And um, yeah, so I just come up with all these, these titles of songs that, that to my, in my mind, kind of, again, tapping into that the, like early eighties punk rock experience of my youth, you know? Um, and uh, some of them were meant to be kind of, you know, just silly, like made or made or whatever, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it just, it, it was, it was a time and it was fun. Uh, what were the early shows that you guys played? Like, where was it like, I know you guys definitely did those, those shows opening for the Beastie Boys and stuff, but like, what were, do you guys do like early sort of like smaller shows first? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we played, um, well, when Adam was in the band, we played, um, but again, we were always still like at the bottom of the bill, but we were like, we played at, at the Palladium, which is a larger venue here in LA. Um, but we were like the opening band with like Fugazi. 
might be calls like Ian, like, can you get DFL on the bill high? And we also played as like the opening, opening band both days, I think for like uh, Lollapalooza, they have like the side, side, side stage. And we were like the band that played first, like as people were like walking in. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and then we, we played, so, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of clubs around, Um, there was like the Gaslight and, and we played this, this crazy, you know, X large was doing really well then fuck. And I have like this flyer of the, the X fucked, did a, did a show at the Hong Kong cafe, which was a trip, you know? Oh, that's awesome. I kind of circle back there. So yeah, we played, played a lot lot of around. Who who played that show? The the X fucked show. Yeah. That was, I think it was us. Lucifer Wong and one other band I'd have to dig up. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that's uh, awesome. Yeah. So I you know, there was there was again, there was like a weird scene that was like kind of like jumping off, you know, with with you know music in the early 90s was you know, there was like some energy there, you know, and definitely and we also played um you know, the Beasties had their studio in Atwater G Sun. Where, where we recorded our first two records, excuse me, and um, uh, they had a stage, and I remember they had like this big party there, and they had like a skate ramp, and we, we you know, we played, you know, and, and all like the kind of the, the glitterati of that time were there, you know, <laughs> like the young, beautiful people of the early 90s uh, showed up, and um, it was fun. It's a good thing, you know, plus a lot of other people, you know, I remember Tony Alva was there, and a bunch of like movie star types. It seems like those would be hard gigs to play though. Like for a hardcore band, especially like it just feels like even opening for Fugazi where, you know, like, you know, like the band is, I don't know, like it feels like the songs are written to rage to and certainly not the vibe of Fugazi show. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the story of the FL. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story of DFL is, you know, is, is playing, is playing this, this type of music where you feel like a bomb just went off in front of you. You know what I mean? Like literally people just look at you like, what the fuck am I watching? You know, just because the music is so fast and because we like stop so quickly and, you know, then you have like these moshes and stuff like that. But, but yeah, there, there's, you know, there, there weren't really any bands, you know, that were doing that. I mean, the, the Beasties recorded some some songs like that that they put on, I think, Check Your Head and Ill Communication, which are which are great. Um, but there really weren't any other bands that, that were, you know, even like the early 80s bands that had kept kind of going, you know, like Bad Religion and stuff like that. Uh, you know, they had they had kind of morphed and into like a, you know, a different sound and stuff like, you know, um, which, you know, in the 90s, they did well. Yeah, no, definitely. Like they, you know, they they all found you know like a, a a different place to go with what they were doing and stuff like that. But like, it's interesting to hear you say that because that's what I always imagined it would be like. I there, I would love to see DFL at a show where people are just going nuts. Like that's kind of like how I envision those shows. But I could imagine having been the first on at not Lollapalooza, but a festival like Lollapalooza. You know, you don't really necessarily get kids going off. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. You definitely, you get people kind of scratching their head or like at the Fugazi show, I remember us playing and just, you know, which to me looked like this cavern, 
And, you know, it's like, you know, everything's like this echoing as people are like, you know, sold out show, everybody's just like walking in. So by the time, you know, it's like been close to half full, your set's over. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. You know, it's amazing to do that kind of stuff too, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's the kind of music that you want to have like a, you know, like a small club that's just packed with people that are just fucking you know, going out of their minds. Uh, how did that, how did the relationship with Epitaph start? Like you mentioned, Brecker was just heard the singles and you decided that would be the better home to kind of take the LPs. Um, well, you know, I knew Brett from early, early eighties also. And I knew his wife at the time, Maggie, um, from early eighties also, um, her name was Maggie touch at the time. And so, you know, we were, you know, it was one big, big, you know, kind of group of friends and, um, Brett, I think Maggie, I think reached out to me and said, Brett, you know, is interested in DFL. And at the time I, I was kind of like, well, you know, things are kind of moving along here at Grand Royal. I think we're going to stick around, but then we wanted to do another record. And, uh, and I don't think Mike, um, Adam Horvitz was, you know, the supporter of DFL, but I don't think Mike was that, that, that supportive of us. And he was doing other stuff and wasn't interested. And so then I, I was like, well, you know, let me see if Brett's still interested. And, and he was, and Brett's always been a, a huge supporter of DFL and, and, you know, you know, I have nothing but gratitude to that guy. And, um, um yeah he was like yeah let's do it he said as long as it's okay with mike so him and mike had like some type of like power phone call and um and mike gave the thumbs up and and then we, we moved over to epitaph and it was great again you know brett was very supportive always accepted everything we turned in you know was um the artwork the music you know it was just thumbs up you know and um, and to this day, like I think our, one of our most popular songs was off of Punkarama Two, um, which people still really like that song and and that and that compilation. Oh yeah, it's amazing! Like how many people come on this podcast and talk about that as being the gateway for them? You know, like it yeah. really the places those compilations went, like the the in, where there was no other punk. You know, like that was the 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 outpost that brought a lot of people in. Totally, totally. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, he's, he was, he was, and, and I, I have to say, you know, DFL has always had in, you know, especially in, in the, in the nineties, I mean, we just had stupid dumb luck. I mean, I can't tell you. Um, but, you know, the thing with the beasties, it was just, you know, I was friends with Adam. Adam used to come and babysit my, my older son, Bella, you know, with, with Ioni. And I was just goofing around, like, let's start a band. And he was like, okay. And Brett, then you know, hey, let's you know, I'd like to sign you guys, and then and then the offspring breaks, and you know, now all of a sudden, you know, Epitaph is like this, still this cool little label, except for they have a gazillion dollars. <laughs> and, um, uh, and Brett was like so generous, you know, I mean, like with with all the bands uh, on the label when he had all that money, you know, he he gave us you know a great deal, and, um, you know, supported us on the road and. You know, it was just, it was it was an amazing time, you know, um, to be back in punk rock. To tell you the truth, you know, I mean, some people I guess will argue, you know, the '90s, but it was a, it was a great time. It was a it was a great great time, you know. And uh, and I love those records that we did with uh, with Epitaph. 
you went on tour with like a incredible range of bands. Um, what's a harder crowd to play for a Slayer crowd or a sublime crowd? Slayer. <laughs> That's like the nightmare scenario. I think opening for them. Uh, it's not even a nightmare scenario. This, cause we did like their, it was their indestructible. Is that mean? The, the record there? Yeah. Their, yeah. Their punk kind of, um, coverage cover. record. Right? Yeah. And so we did that. So they wanted to only play small clubs. So like we played like the whiskey and like the bottom of the hill in San Francisco. I mean, really small clubs where like, you know, one eighth of their equipment would probably fit into these clubs. <laughs> and, you know, when you open up for Slayer in between your songs, there's one thing that people yell at you and you know what that is, right? Slayer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <Slayer>. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, you know, you play these, these, these shows and it wasn't hard to play from because they didn't yell boo. They didn't say anything. They just yelled Slayer, you know, it was, it was like that was so to me, that was hilarious. I, I thought that was really fun. And the, the tour with Sublime was great. You know, it was right before they, they blew up with um, their, their last record, unfortunately. And um, they were the nicest guys in the world, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and you know, incredibly talented. And, and on that, I, I was able to, to get to know Bradley a little bit. And we became friends. And it was a total bummer when, when he lost his life due to drug addiction, you know. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, what it'd be like today to have that guy still around because he was just uh, incredibly talented. Yeah, they really did feel, well, like you mentioned, like the next record was the record that, you know, like that that still to this day is like, you know, it's a record that is, they're a band that, you know, like would have been, like who knows, like you're saying, where it would have been. Like they could have been, you know, like the next Grateful Dead or something, you know, like they would have been a band that people would fall around. People still follow them around and they haven't been. People still do. Yeah. They're, they're still, their, their music gets played all the time. It's really good. And, and here's like a hilarious thing. I mean, you know, uh, I think his, his birthday was recently. And um, so I went back and looked at this, the CD and we're like the first on their thank yous. We get thanked first on that record. somehow or another. <laughs> And and then there's like a picture of like the DFL knucklehead face. I don't know if you know it, but yes. both somebody and they're they're like all flipping off the camera on the inside. So that's cool. It's it's um you know I think it's the thing it's a testament to the fact that like all these people were punk hardcore people like hardcore people specifically and loved hardcore music. So here you guys are kind of the, one of the few real legit hardcore bands happening. Like of course all these people like love the band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was good. We also had a very a very good manager at the time. So <laughs> it was it was a he was able to. But I mean, we also went on tour with other bands at that manager. We went on tour with Pennywise. We went on tour with Seven Seconds, uh, with Voodoo Glow Skulls. You know, a lot of our, our uh, label mates. You know, and so you know it. it you know, it was a time I, I'd have to say probably my favorite tour that we did actually was, was touring with Pennywise. Um, they had a great crowd and it was a lot of fun. And, and Fletcher was like, you know, out of his mind, torturing us like day and night. And it was, it was a trip. Yeah. Fletcher is, uh, he's truly in all my touring experiences. He is, uh, when he gets it in for someone, he gets it in for someone. He had it in for us, but it's the kind of guy that the, the, I mean, I don't know. I could be wrong, but it seemed like the more he liked you, the more he tortured you. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. If he doesn't <laughs> like you, he's just going to kill you. <laughs> probably. That's probably that's probably exactly right. But with us, he would just shoot us with his BB gun. Like we'd be like playing and we'd be he'd be on the side of the stage shooting us like during our set. Uh, I, when he was on the show, I asked him who he was scared of. And he said Rollins. Because when he was, when he saw Rollins sing for Black Flag for the first time, it was at like some house show and he was high on mushrooms and Rollins just beat the shit out of him. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's saying something because he's, he's not a small guy. No, <laughs> I think but the he, mushrooms helped. Yeah. 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 He, I remember we were, we were playing a show with them in, I think it was somewhere in texas maybe austin and it was like the middle of the summer like eight million degrees out and we're in our like you know bad hotel room that's like this motel kind of deal and all of a sudden like smoke starts coming in the um the air conditioner that's like you know one of these that you kind of put on a window and he's outside the window lighting a towel on fire trying to like smoke us out of the room and then our bass player Tom Barda opens up the door. They shove the door open over the guy's feet. He starts screaming and they're videotaping and he comes in and he grabs my blanket. He goes, get out of bed, midget. Yanks my, my blanket off and he's got this um, BB gun machine gun that he bought in Japan. But we also had a BB gun machine gun that we had been like hiding for the whole tour, waiting for the right time to get it out. And it was like one of these things like in a dream, like I just rolled over grabbed our BB gun machine gun and just like started blasting everybody in the room. And they then all piled out of the room. And um, then Barda from the bathroom, like dipped a towel in the toilet, which I think probably had pee in it, threw it towards them at the door and like wraps around someone's head. I think it was the guy that was probably videotaping. And you could tell, you could hear him go like, this thing smells like piss. <laughs> it was like that. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, uh, Monty, this has been incredible. Anytime you want to come back on this podcast, please know uh, the, the door is always open. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, us guys with, with fuck, you know, our band's name have to stick together. So I've always had a very high regard for your band and for you as well. So uh, this, this is an honor to, to be on your show. So I really appreciate it, Adrian. Thank you, Monty, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Monty will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. And I say at some point in the near future because I am now working with Monty and we are in the works of getting this Adams record out for the world to finally hear. More information coming on this soon, but uh, Monty and I are are figuring it out as we speak. But I wanted to let you know that this this has spurred me into action, and there will be a turned out a punk record uh, hitting the uh, world at some point in the near future. Because I can't believe we we got to the bottom of it. This is like the Rosetta Stone through this band through Monty. You can connect Guns and Roses to Minor Threat to to the beastie boys you can get a lot of stuff anyway we'll we'll get into this later monty will be back for a part two at some point to discuss that i'm sure of it anyway coming up on the next episode of the show so happily i finally get to put this one up for you because i thought i lost this one this is one of those episodes that i thought i lost 
in that hard drive disaster that I've alluded to on the show, but I have found a second copy of this file, and oh my gosh, I am so happy that we get to put this episode up finally. Coming up on the next episode of Turned Out of Punk, the first sitting member of Canadian Parliament ever on the show from the NDP party representing the riding of Timmins James Bay from the band L'Etranger and Grievous Angel, the legend, the legend, Charlie Angus will be here on the show. Chuck Angus, as I believe he was accredited on L'Etranger. Uh, this is this is a fantastic episode with someone who I really look up to, and I'm so happy I finally get to put this thing up, uh, and I'm happy you get to hear it. All right, that is that for today's episode. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. And we need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths because this shit is not political. This is just basic human rights stuff. So smash fascism and let people be free. That's all we need. And sign your organ donor cards because when they come looking for those organs, you don't need that shit. You're just like, I don't need this. Get it on my body. Maybe you can do some good with it. And they can. They can. Science can. I've seen it. I've seen it happen. So sign those organ donor cards. Go out there and make your own culture because anyone can do this. And it doesn't have to be a podcast. It can be starting a band. It can be starting a fanzine. It can be starting a, uh, uh, anything. <laughs> You're just drawing a picture. Just draw a picture. You don't have to show anyone. Just do it for yourself. You know, try something. Try making something creative. And since you're trying new things, try meditating. Maybe it'll work. I try it, and it works for me. And I didn't believe in it. I really didn't believe in it. And now I, I kind of do. So maybe maybe you will too. Try it. Um, and that's that. Get your shot. Wear a mask. And, and I'll hopefully see you at a show. Holy. That would be fun to play a show again. And uh, I, But I think that is that is it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. See you on the next one. Bye.